Let's now turn for our scripture reading to Ephesians chapter 2. And again, we'll read uh, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near, for through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And our text uh, this morning is uh, verses 14 through 18. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we uh, proceed uh, through this book, we notice that uh, this letter to the Ephesians gives more and more prominence to a great theme that runs through the whole book, and that is the vastness of God's saving plan. A plan that includes Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, uh, from all nations. It includes them no less than Jews. It's a plan that is aimed at making up one people of God, uh, one church, one spiritual temple, as we hear towards the end of this chapter, joined to one head, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a theme that continues to be of tremendous practical importance for Christians today, because it shows that the power of the gospel is not simply that of restoring uh, personal peace with God, but it is powerful to undo the divisions and the enmity and the broken relationships among people caused by sin, to make a new man, a new humanity, a new creation. And uh, this is vitally important, isn't it, for the whole meaning of the coming of Christ that we remember in a special way at this time of year. You remember the announcement of the angels to the shepherds, there in the fields of Bethlehem, which included the proclamation of peace on earth. Peace on earth. Peace in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, because through him alone, our natural enmity towards God and towards each other 
has been replaced uh, with peace. Christ is our peace. Christ is our peace with God and with each other. And that in itself is a powerful uh, statement that we read in verse 14. He himself is our peace. It doesn't merely say that, that he accomplishes peace or that he promises peace or that he gives peace. But rather he is peace in his own person. And uh, it shows how Christ-centered this peace is. It also shows how how secure it is, how objectively certain. It's not a matter of fluctuating experiences and feelings. It is a peace that is in Christ and is found wherever there is a union with this Savior. Peace in Christ. He is our peace. And first we consider that it's a peace that's achieved by his death. Christ destroyed the, the obstacles, uh, the barriers to peace. In verse 14 we read, He himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. And then verse 15 describes uh, that wall of separation, where it says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. It's a reference here to those regulations that were given to Israel. Regulations for their life and worship. Those regulations involved a kind of institutionalized divide between Jew and Gentile. Look at things like circumcision. Look at the whole sacrificial system. Look at the pervasive distinction between clean and unclean that extended to every aspect of their lives, including the foods that they may eat or must not eat including all the various ways in which they might be rendered unclean in their daily life, concerning all the ways in which they had to maintain a kind of ceremonial cleanness by any infraction of these laws and regulations, which set them so radically and drastically apart from the unclean nations that surrounded them. A wall of separation even symbolized by a very literal wall that was built in the temple courts, distinguishing the, the, the court of the Gentiles from the inner courts to which Israelites had access. And the Gentiles had to stay out. They dare not cross that wall, but by the penalty of death. That's the, that's the background, really, uh, to what we read about in Acts chapter uh, 21 where uh, a bunch of Jewish people laid hands upon Paul and they cried out because they feared that he had desecrated the temple because he brought Trophimus, a Gentile, actually an Ephesian Gentile. So they supposed they thought that he had brought him into the temple and had violated the holy place. The law gave rise to mutual enmity and hatred between Jew and Gentile. The Jews uh, saw the law as a bastion of their privilege from which they looked down with contempt 
upon the Gentiles, and the Gentiles saw it as a rampart of their assumed uh, superiority, a wall behind which these enemies of the human race, that's the way the Jewish people were labeled, or practiced uh, their disgusting rites, so they thought. But the death of Christ ended that. The death of Christ meant the abolition of the whole sacrificial system that was entirely central to the worship of the Old Covenant. It emptied circumcision of its meaning. In fact, the death of Christ even involved the deconsecration of the temple itself, not just the outer courts. But the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was torn in two. And in a sense, we must see in that act of God, it's a divine act, a deconsecration of the entire structure of old covenant worship, making clear that the only way into God's presence is what? Brought near by the blood of Christ. Putting in end to the uh, significance of all other bloodlettings, whether by circumcision or sacrifice. Christ fulfilled them all and made clear that Jews and Gentiles are brought near to God on the same terms and the only terms. Christ united Jews and Gentiles in his suffering flesh having abolished in his flesh the enmity. Now, brothers and sisters, that is a reference to the reality of uh, the true human flesh and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That flesh and blood which the eternal Son took unto himself by the incarnation from the virgin deriving his flesh and blood from her own flesh and blood, partaking of genuine humanity in our place. And this unity that our text speaks of, we must uh, understand, not simply as the result of, of his death. Of course, it is the result of his death, and it's inseparable from his death. But think of the fact that at the time that Jesus died, uh, Jews and Gentiles were still alienated. Those who would be brought together in the same congregation, worshiping the same Lord in the same way, they were yet alienated from one another. But in the purpose of God, the death of Christ accomplished their reunion. That purpose is described in verse 16, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. And it's interesting to ask the question, what is the reference to this one body? Well, no doubt Jews and Gentiles make up one body, but they're made one body. The illusion appears to be through the body of Christ. Between that goal of actual reconciliation in terms of their unity of faith, between that actual goal and their present condition, there was only one pathway. And that pathway is the Via Dolorosa, the pathway of suffering, the pathway of our Savior's agonies. From Gethsemane to Gabbatha to Golgotha, in which he suffered in the flesh, 
literally, Christ took these divided people and he became one with them. And all the hatefulness and all the wrath that they all deserved from God, he took upon himself and weighted down under this aggregate mass of sin and guilt of a people hateful and hating one another, he went to the cross. And there his flesh was torn, his blood was spilled, the enmity was abolished, put to death. In the death of this one man who gave his life a ransom for all. Now, this is not simply a history lesson, brothers and sisters, about what God accomplished in bringing Jews and Gentiles, these inveterate enemies, together. It's a story of the reconciliation that Christ accomplished in the lives of those who, by nature, hate God and their neighbor. And Christ abolished that enmity. Can you see how that applies to us? What conflicts, what divisions are caused by our pride, our self-righteousness, our superior attitudes, the contempt that we might hold for others in our hearts, our unforgiveness, sometimes our guilt. Sometimes guilt is a part of an ongoing alienation that may characterize the sad divisions and relationships between brothers and sisters because there has been an offense and that offense remains unforgiven and reconciliation doesn't take place and guilty parties in order to justify that continuing state of enmity, what do they do? They need to kind of exaggerate the fault. They need to kind of uh, remember it. They need to kind of nurse the wound They need to kind of eagerly absorb any kind of information that might justify a continued offense and grievance and grudge. And what's the solution to that, brothers and sisters? What's the solution to the mentality that says, yes, but they have done me wrong and they really ought to pay? They they should get what they've got coming to them in some way. Unless I see that, I won't be satisfied and there can be real no real peace. Well, the gospel solution to that is look to the cross of Jesus Christ. You want to see vengeance against their sin? Look at the wounds of the Savior. Is that enough? Is that sufficient punishment for their wrongdoings, for you to forgive them? What God has done in their substitute? Do you believe that their brothers and sisters confessing their sin? Saying, Lord, forgive me. And do you believe that God accepts the sacrifice of His Son to forgive and pardon them? Can we forgive and pardon those who've sinned against us? Oh, but they're not sufficiently sorry. Well, maybe they have their blind spots. Which one of us dares to say we don't have any blind spots? Which one of us would adopt a position that we must meticulously know and grieve for and confess every last sin that we commit before we're forgiven by God. Martin Luther could tell you something about that kind of bondage. But the knowledge of all our sins forgiven through the all-sufficient sacrifice of the Savior, that ought to open the floodgates of acceptance and forgiveness and love 
for all those with whom we share this faith in a crucified Savior. We want to see God's vengeance, take vengeance on our own sins by repentance, repentance for our pride and our unforgiveness and our lack of love, and glorify the grace of our Savior in this way. That's what Christ achieved by his death. Let's honor it. Peace achieved by Christ's death. Peace with God. Peace with one another. Peace applied by Christ's ministry. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off. He came and preached peace to you. Now Paul's writing to Ephesians. They're in Asia Minor. Jesus never went there during his earthly ministry. But he came and he preached. When was that? Well, the work of the gospel ministry here is attributed to Christ himself. To those who never heard his voice speaking on earth. How shall they believe in whom they have not heard, Paul asks in Romans 10. How shall they hear without a preacher? Yes, it's through the gospel ministry that Christ calls his sheep. It's through the ministry of the gospel that these Ephesian Gentiles heard the voice of the good shepherd calling them to faith and repentance. And they received it and believed and entered into peace. They heard that message that Romans 10 also describes as it describes the gospel ministry. It describes uh, the message where it says, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. That's descriptive of the message. Who bring glad tidings of good things. Comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem. And cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Remember our Savior's repeated words following his resurrection and his appearances to his disciples? Peace. Peace to you. Peace. Three times. That's the result of his saving work. A message of redemption accomplished. Reconciliation achieved. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their iniquities to them, Paul says. It needs only to be received by faith, by those who hear it. God has committed to us this uh, ministry of reconciliation, whereby on Christ's behalf we implore you, be reconciled to God. Receive this good news of reconciliation accomplished on God's side through Christ. And receive it and enter into this peace. And it's the same message that comes to all. This is the special emphasis of our text, right? Where it says, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. That's the distinction, right? That's the distinction between Jew and Gentile. Those who are far off and those who are near. The promise is to you and to your children. Peter preached at Pentecost, and to all who are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call unto him. So the difference is acknowledged, but that difference has absolutely nothing to do with the gospel by which they are saved. In the next chapter, in the sixth verse, we read, 
of God's purpose, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. The exact same terms. Very interestingly, in Acts chapter 15, where we read of this dispute over the question whether or not Gentiles must be circumcised, of course, the answer that is given uh, is no, by no means. But uh, in the course of this deliberation, um, Peter rose up and said to the assembly there, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. We'll get back to that in a minute. He acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. No difference. And made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. How do unclean Gentiles become pure? By faith. By Jesus Christ. Not circumcision. Not adopting all the rules and regulations and rituals of the law. By faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we might expect at this point for Peter to say, they will be saved in the same manner as us. But he reverses it. He reverses it to make the point. He says, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. By putting Jew first, a tremendous emphasis is placed on the equality of Jew and Gentile, with the point being made that, yes, us Jewish sinners, we will be saved too. How? Well, in the same manner as they, by faith in Christ. One of the best things about the good news is that it unites people around the cross of Jesus Christ. And the way it does that is that it first levels everyone in the reality of their sin and need. It levels them in such a way that the distinctions between one sinner and another before an infinitely holy God are nothing. Nothing with respect to the way of acceptance and salvation. It must be by pure grace you know, it, it it means like you're going to be saved in the same way that the convicted murderer is going to be saved who believes in Jesus. The same way, exactly. No difference. Because before God and the righteousness and holiness of his law, your standing is the same. My nature, dead in trespasses and sins, condemned. And the way of salvation is the same. The gospel levels everyone and then it lifts all together. How? In Christ. Raised up together with Christ. Seated in the heavenly places. Brought into the holy presence of God. What a, what an important witness this is for the Christian church today. We ought to talk about it. We ought to confess that the only solution for the animosity, the rivalry, competition, hatred, racism, the division of every group against the other, there's only one solution to that. It's Christ. It's the Prince of Peace. 
It's the Savior who suffered and died to remove hostility and enmity by paying the penalty for such hatred that otherwise characterize a depraved and fallen human race. Peace applied by Christ's ministry. Thirdly, peace enjoyed through Christ's mediation. Uh, the closing words of our text uh, take us to the goal of that peace, where, where we read in verse 18, For through him we both, again, that's Jew and Gentile, right? We both have access by one spirit to the Father. This is a, a, a grace that restores people to God, that brings acceptance in the sight of God. We have access to God that involves nearness in his holy presence and, and fellowship with him, where before there was animosity. Notice also, again, how the, the Christ-centered gospel of Scripture is God-centered. We must never remember it, or never forget that, I should say. We must always remember it. Because there's a danger and there's a tendency, and I find it to be um, quite prominent in much modern evangelicalism, and it ought not to creep into uh, churches that are better informed, that there's a Jesus-centeredness to the faith. Prayers are to Jesus. Jesus is worshipped. Yes, we pray to Jesus. We worship Jesus, but not in a way that misses out on how the Bible speaks of these inter-Trinitarian relationships and in the way it speaks of our redemption. Christ suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. And that's the language of our text. God-centeredness to the faith. Now our restoration and or our, the enjoyment of this restoration to God is not yet perfect, but the way is open and we enter that way and we may continuously enter that way and speak to God our Heavenly Father and say our Father in Heaven and make known our requests with confidence and assurance that we're heard for the sake of the Mediator. We may listen to his voice. We may know his gracious acceptance. And, and this is the way the, the, the Bible constantly sets forth our privilege uh, through Christ. This, this is the way it constantly describes the achievement of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Yes, there is a treasure house of grace in God. And there is one door into this treasure house. And it's through the Lord Jesus. And through him we have constant access to this treasure house of every supply that we might need for body and soul, for life and in death. Chapter 3, verse 12, the next chapter in Ephesians, it says, In whom, that is, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Again, the, the same thing. That's what verse 8 means when it says, Through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. But we must not ignore 
or minimize the significance of the fact that this privilege is also shared by one spirit. Again, we're, we're, we're struck constantly if we pay attention to the Bible that the gospel is Trinitarian. It's about the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and their respective works in our redemption. And this is another theme of the unqualified equality that exists in the gospel of salvation. By one spirit, we have all been baptized into one body, whether Jew or Gentile, uh, slave or free. And we have all been made to drink of that one spirit. Whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. If anyone thirsts, let him come unto him. These promises of the gospel, the promise that Peter proclaimed at Pentecost when the spirit had just been poured out on the church was a promise that has a special focus in the work of the Holy Spirit. It's through the Holy Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father, with the spirit of adoption through Christ. Praying in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Division among Christians really would pit the Holy Spirit against the Holy Spirit when you think about it in that way. Make every endeavor, we read in chapter 4, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Christ is our peace with God and with one another. And let's show that we value this grace of God in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, uh, Paul says, with respect to his desire to come again to Philippi, he says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together, not striving against each other, but striving together, for the faith of the gospel. And so the application of, of this wondrous grace of God, as already indicated, involves our acceptance of one another in love, as loved by God, as believing that I am loved by God and you are loved by God. And this also is to be evident in how we treat visitors and how we treat uh, newcomers, I think it's good to ask ourselves, what kind of walls might we set up that could be a hindrance to this expression and the practice of this unity that we have with all believers? When we discover differences, do we treat them? Do we, uh, do we treat these differences or persons as if on the other, other side of a wall. Now, this has multiple applications. I'm raising the question for us to think about. It's a reminder not to make a mountain out of a molehill. Not to put peripheral things up front and center in terms of the basis for our recognition and acceptance of brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that we might rather show acceptance and speak acceptance even as we strive for a unity of mind. 
A growing agreement indeed. Exhibit this in our closest relationships, our daily relationships. It has reference to the relationships of husbands and wives. In 1 Peter 3, husbands are, are commanded to dwell with their wives with understanding as with a, ve- a weaker vessel and as heirs together of the grace of life. The fundamental unity that husbands have together in Christ is the foundation for the practice of love and companionship in even that closest of relationships. And then finally, remember the greatest apologetic, that is the greatest defense of the Christian faith that the church offers to the world. Yes, we bear testimony to the gospel, of course, that's first. But in terms of giving credibility to that message, Jesus highlights a few things that are worth taking note of and giving serious attention to. When he prays that the church may be one, he adds that the world may know that you have sent me. What is the testimony, according to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the reality of the coming of the Savior? It's a oneness of believers in love. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Because the grace that reconciles sinners to God reconciles them to one another in him. And that should be what the world sees of us in our life, in our fellowship, in our love, our living together. Amen.